0: Uh, Good evening, uh, everybody. Uh, Welcome to this uh, lecture this evening, organized uh, by three bodies in the school, the Ralph Darendorf Forum, which is named after the eighth director of the school, Ralph Darendorf, uh, the International Relations Department, and uh, LSE Ideas. Um, The public lecture this evening is organized... On the occasion also of the publication of Russia's Foreign Policy Ideas, Domestic Politics and External Relations, a collective volume co edited by LSE academics Dr. David Cadier and Professor Margot Light, to which uh, Dr. Trenin, who I'll introduce in a moment, has contributed a chapter. I'm told by Palgrave that they're selling it at half price outside. That still makes it £32. <laughs> so if you want to borrow a bit of money off me, please don't ask. Um, I should actually say who i am i 'm Professor Michael Cox Nick Cox from uh, LSE Ideas, which I chair, which i 'm sure many of you know. there could be, however, no more important topic to be discussing at the moment uh, than Russia, what is happening in Russia internally, domestically, what is driving uh, Russian foreign policy what are the, and is, are we actually as some people claim uh, in the middle of a new Cold war, or is it even more dangerous than the than the old Cold War, as some have even argued. Perhaps we should go back to the Cold War, it was a good deal more stable, some would even argue. And I can't think of anybody better to reflect on these questions, to ask the right questions and hopefully answer them than Dr. Dmitry Trenin, who's director of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in Moscow, the endowment. He has previously been a senior research fellow at the NATO Defense College and a fellow at the Institute of Europe And prior to 1993, in this sense, Dmitry has unique experience. He served or had served in the Soviet and Russian armed forces, including participation on the staff for U.S.-Soviet nuclear talks in Geneva and also teaching for War Studies Department of the Military Institute, I I assume, within Moscow. Uh, Dmitry chairs now today the Foreign and Security Policy Program. He's the author of several books, including Post-Imperium, a Eurasian Story, A solo voyage It's in Russian, getting Russia right, Central Asia, integration and identity and many, many other things. Yesterday morning, Dmitry gave a wonderful breakfast presentation thinking about Russian policy in in Syria, a wonderful discussion and it's great to have Dmitry here this evening to reflect maybe more broadly on the topic of Russian foreign policy as an exercise in nation building. Just one little bit of business, if you could all turn your phones off, because I haven't turned mine off yet. I've just remembered. So if you could all turn yours off so we don't get any interruptions, that'll be wonderful. Uh, Dimitri, you're doing yours as well. That's good. I should have said that much earlier. I do apologize. Anyway, with no further ado, I wonder if you could all give Dimitri Trenin a very fine LSE welcome. Thank you very much. indeed.
1: Above all else, uh, let me say I'm very happy to be here with you tonight. And many thanks, Professor Cox, for this um, uh, introduction, which I, I may not fully deserve. But uh, I'm deeply uh, honored to be a member of the team that uh, Margot Light and David McCudier, uh brought together to do a study on Russian foreign policy. And this is, uh, this is the prime reason uh, for me to be here. So I really would want to recognize their great effort herding cats of different nationalities and uh, producing what I think is a very, very good and insightful book, apart from my chapter, uh, that, is, um, that I think is, 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 is a contribution to understanding what uh, sometimes is believed to be uh, too difficult to understand. Um, I've been asked to talk about um, a subject which uh, is, uh, is, is, as far as I know, has not been researched very well. Most of my colleagues uh, maintain that uh, Russia's foreign policy, especially under Putin, uh, is um, a tool, just a tool of uh, regime preservation, so what Russia does abroad basically has one big reason and one big reason only to keep the uh, current leadership of the country in power and and stumbling from one crisis to another. They uh, divert the attention of the people toward Russia's successes or successful management of crises and uh, keep themselves in office. Well, as someone who is studying foreign policy and has some healthy respect for those who study domestic politics, I politely disagree. I think that uh, Russia's foreign policy clearly has a, a long tradition of uh, uh, pursuing various objectives uh, in various parts of the world. But uh, to return the compliment to my uh, colleagues on the domestic side, I've chosen this topic, and uh, I will talk about Russia's foreign policy as an an instrument, as a way of nation-building in uh, post-imperial Russia. So let me um, let me open with um, uh, with one thesis. If uh, Putin's Vladimir Putin's uh, legacy is, if he were to be uh, analyzed as a, as a leader today, uh, his achievements, accomplishments, uh, his ambitions, I think you would uh, probably agree with me if uh, if. I say that uh, there are two things, two very important things that he really cares about. One was uh, to keep Russia in one piece. And two was to elevate Russia to the rightful position, as Putin sees it, as the Russian political class sees it, as the bulk of the Russian people see that, uh, to the rank of the world's great powers. And that, I think, is, uh, is something that Mr. Putin has been working on ever since he became president on New Year's Eve 1999, and he was following the behest of his predecessor, um, Boris Yeltsin, uh, who uh, urged him. Uh, Russia, keep Russia intact. Uh, Mr. Putin did not um, depart from that, from that goal. He actually devoted his uh, um, early years as president to uh, unifying, centralizing the country. And I don't have to go uh, in great detail to discuss these things, and this is beside the subject of this, of this presentation. But it was the uh, second goal uh, foreign policy as, uh, um, as, uh, as a means to elevate Russia to uh, the position of the great powers uh, in this world that I will focus on. And um, uh, it needs to be said that uh, Russia's foreign policy has not been uh, recently very much about nation-building. With, uh, with uh, since the days of Mikhail Gorbachev, it was more about fitting Russia into the wider world. It was more about making uh, Russians... Uh, Remaking Russians as Europeans. It was more about globalizing um, Russia's um, worldview, or Russians' worldview. And immediately after the end of the Soviet Union, the uh, focus was very much on integrating Russia into Europe, into the West more broadly. And um, Putin when he became president, actually took up this um, theme and um, in his uh, post-9-11 pronouncements, including the more important one in the German Bundestag in uh, uh, 2001, he talked about the need for Russia to um, show solidarity with the United States, uh, seek an alliance with Washington, and uh, promote Russia's European choice. So foreign policy was seen by Putin in that period more as a tool of modernization of Russia, more uh, more as a tool of uh, winning friends abroad and fitting Russia in. He wanted Russia in NATO. He was looking for ways to integrate Russia with the European Union, and uh, that uh, was the prin- principal theme of his, uh, certainly of his first foreign, uh, of his first uh, presidency. But then things uh, began to change, and uh, fast forward, forward to 2000 and. Eleven. Um, by that time, I think uh, Putin was ready for a big change, and this big change came as a result of his um, assessment of uh, President Medvedev. Uh, President Medvedev, of course, was working for Mr. Putin. Um, President Medvedev's uh, foreign policy accomplishments. Uh, In particular, I think Putin was uh, very disappointed with the lack of progress on the security side. Uh, In in Medvedev's times, the big issue for Russia was not so much the START treaty, the new START treaty that was negotiated, signed, and and, uh, ratified by the United States and Russia, but uh, uh, the issue of uh, ballistic missile defenses. And on that issue, um, he basically got nowhere at the end of the day. And to add um, insult to injury, the uh, Libya operation 2011 that uh, the Russians uh, did not block at the United Nations Security Council produced um, a result that... uh, to Mr. Putin, meant that uh, essentially Russia had been taken for a ride by its Western partners. I think it was uh, very important that uh, Putin, in the years of the Medvedev presidency, um, I think experienced something like um, a midlife crisis. It was in that period that his, uh, his family life... Uh, um, changed. Uh, it was in that period when when I think he became more ideological than before. I think it was in that period that he started uh, thinking more of himself as uh, as one in the long line of rulers of Russia. Then, as he put it, when he celebrated his 50th birthday back in 2002, just a top manager hired by the Russian people to do a job for X number of years. So that's the change between 2002 and, let's say, 2012. Uh, The Moscow protests of 2011 and 2012, uh, which were directed against... uh, Immediately against the, uh, the, 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 the fraud, um, the flawed election, vo- election counting, the vote counting at the election. Uh, it, there was a Duma election, as, as you may know, may remember, in 2011. But it soon became um, a protest against a uh, very broad array of Mr. Putin's policies and against Mr. Putin himself. To Mr. Putin, coming from um, uh, the part of the government that in many countries of the world, maybe in all countries of the world, believes that the world is uh, more organized, more managed, more controlled than it actually is, i.e. the intelligence community. To him, those protests uh, uh, were not so much spontaneous outbursts of people's uh, frustration, anger, desire for change, but more of a of a plot hatched by uh, the United States, State Department, Mrs. Clinton, to um, interfere in Russia's internal affairs. It didn't help that uh, a few months earlier, when Uh, then President Medvedev was speaking uh, at a public meeting in Germany and uh, at that time he was still uh, playing the game whether he is going to be a candidate in the forthcoming presidential elections or not Um, uh, the German chancellor called uh, Medvedev her candidate uh, in the election and that to Putin must have seemed as uh, Again, another interference in in the way russia is run uh, this all boils down to um, a, a big change in um, in 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 the attitudes of the man running russia and the change went away from it took him away from a, a more globalistic uh, more modernization style um, uh, policy and more toward uh, more nationalistic, uh, more Russian uh, foreign policy. it coincided with the palpable rise of nationalism in Russia, and uh, this was clear after the demise of liberalism, the, um, uh, the years of uh, uh, Putin prosperity, the 2000s. Uh, gave a lot of Russians uh, back their pride uh, to some it was more than pride it was a reassertion of uh, uh, their their power and, and, the, and the position that their country should um, should command in the world so Mr. Putin was not so much. Um, inventing nationalism as uh, riding on the wave of nationalism, which coincided, I think, with his own personal uh, evolution by that time. But up until that moment, I think uh, it was more reactive. Uh, Putin was not so much presenting a vision of uh, uh, what Russia should be, but rather reacting to what he thought, what he saw as uh, hostile attempts to uh, interfere in Russian affairs or to keep Russia down. The change became uh, apparent uh, soon after Putin uh, assumed the presidency in May 2012. And at that time, um, his reaction against uh, popular uprising led by a uh, popular, not uprising, popular protests of course uh, in his view uh, supported from abroad turned into uh, a construction of a new kind of uh, um, state system and a new kind of uh, foreign policy that would contribute to the uh, reordering of Russia, making it more of a nation state, uh, making it more of a first of all, making it more of a functioning, um, making it more of a of, of, of a of a of, of a state um, uh, focused on itself. Uh, there's uh, clearly um, an element of uh, fear of color revolutions here. And um, uh, it was very clear also from the um, experience of color revolutions that uh, they succeed uh, when an important part of the elite changes um, uh, changes sides. And in particular, the people with uh, the power of... Uh, um, the, the, who, who have the power uh, in their hands, the people in the police force, the people in the security services, the people in the military. So uh, for Mr. Putin, the priority from 2012 has become a nationalization of the elites. Um, and that nationalization was uh, implemented through a variety of, of means. Um, Mr. Putin clearly realized that uh, a lot of Russian officials who had uh, uh, assets and property abroad were very vulnerable to, um, to other countries' uh, um, uh, justice uh, departments, police, uh, uh, and, and security services. So basically, the idea was to ban... Uh, people holding office in Russia from uh, owning property and owning assets abroad. So coming home so that they are, A, less vulnerable from outside, from the outside and more manipulable from the inside. The, uh, the next thing was um, ext- extirpating all foreign influence in the Russian uh, political uh, on the Russian political scene. Of course, you uh, will have heard about uh, the NGO law. And this is uh, um, clearly uh, an example, a very major example of how um, Mr. Putin and uh, the Russian government uh, decided to move against the uh, for any foreign influence on, um, uh, on on the Russian on Russian domestic politics. But let me also add that uh, this uh, drive went farther. Uh, not only did uh, Russia uh, impose controls on uh, the way the NGOs were managed. Uh, The NGOs were controlled in uh, the NGOs who received foreign funding were controlled inside Russia. But even those arrangements, those agreements that uh, had Russia itself as a state, uh, as a recipient of Western largesse and uh, the West as a donor, those uh, treaties, agreements had to be renegotiated. That included, for example, the... uh, um, uh, non-Lugar initiative that helped for a number of years for 20 years after the end of the Cold War helped um, Russia deal with a very important task of uh, um, dismantling the nuclear arsenal that had to be reduced under the, um, under the agreements signed with the United States. Uh, All official contacts uh, were also, all official contacts of Russian uh, government employees had to come under scrutiny, uh, and uh, there was no longer any um, uh, laxity about the contacts between Russian officials and foreigners. Um, The concept of one world... Of which Russia, where Russia was part of this global system, was replaced by a concept of Russian world, and that happened um, again at the start of the uh, of the current presidency of Vladimir Putin. Uh, at the meeting of the Valdai Club in September two thousand and fourteen, uh, President Putin laid out his view of uh, the world. And according to him, the world is composed of uh, a number of uh, large geopolitical, geoeconomic, cultural, strategic entities that were in permanent competition among themselves. And uh, Russia, as a, a core of uh, the entity which Mr. Putin called the Russian world, had a natural role to play in uh, in that game of competition among the biggies. The concept of the Russian world, which had been there uh, for some time, received uh, uh, much more prominence as a result. The Russian world basically covered um, the entire territory of the former Soviet Union minus the Baltic states, the entire CIS region. Um, This geopolitical concept had a practical uh, practical side in uh, Mr. Putin's drive to uh, uh, restore uh, a a modicum of uh, geopolitical, economic, and cultural unity among the former Soviet countries within his a project of a Eurasian Economic Union. First of all, it was called, initially it was called the Eurasian Union, and it was only later at the uh, insistence of uh, other countries, non-Russian members of the Union, that the word economic was inserted there. So the, um, uh, the, 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 the concept of the Russian world uh, became... Uh, uh, truly the centerpiece of uh, Russia's foreign policy back in 2013. Um, the event which is, uh, or rather the the, the scandal that uh, used to be um, headline news for months uh, and is now more or less forgotten, was another important milestone in the way toward uh, Russia asserting not only its geopolitical um, uniqueness and its geopolitical um, uh, its 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 special geopolitical role, but also uh, its its own values, which were not uh, fully consonant with the values of modern day uh, present day Europe. I am referring to the Pussy Riot scandal of 2012 uh, that was uh, an important milestone again in, uh, in Russia's official attitudes toward Europe and more broadly the West uh, and uh, I would not want to un- underestimate the importance of that change for a long time for decades and centuries essentially Europe was seen as both a mentor and a model by generations of Russians. And now came the moment when the Russians, at least the official Russians, and those associated with them looking at Europe came to the conclusion that Europe had gone too far and that Russia would not follow Europe. That indeed modern European values with regard to the family, uh, with regard to, uh, uh, primarily with regard to the family, but also with regard to, the, uh, to issues such as sovereignty, uh, were too um, liberal and inappropriate for a country like Russia, and maybe also bad for Europe. And that change was clearly very important. Another important change, again, uh, that happened at the same time was uh, a revision of uh, post-Soviet relationships with the, neighboring, with the neighboring countries. Putin made a, a memorable statement which in 2013, which he had repeated several times since, and that statement was... Referring to Russians and Ukrainians as one people, and that was a totally different concept from the one that uh, had been there before. That was a concept of um, of uh, very clear Russocentric integration in the former Soviet Union. Uh, this, by the way, was uh, perhaps the underlying the the underlying. Um, uh, motive, or the underlying, at least the underlying principle of Russia's policies toward Ukraine in 2013 and 2014. Uh, the Ukrainian Euromaidan, which began in, in in late 2013, made the new trends in Russia virtually irreversible. Um, the support uh, the, 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 the support that the Maidan received from um, uh, Western uh, societies, Western governments, Western publics, was seen as, uh, in the Kremlin as a political invasion of the Russian world. And uh, what happened in uh, Kiev in uh, February 2014 was described as a foreign instigated coup d'etat. And this basically uh, illustrates the new vision of, uh, uh, of the West by, uh, by Russia. Uh, what happened in Kiev since the uh, uh, coup or the revolution uh, in Kiev uh, was seen as uh, the triumph of uh, the worst enemies of Russia, if you like, Western Ukrainian nationalism on the one hand, and pro-Western Ukrainian uh, trends or pro-Western Ukrainian politicians and those who supported them, uh, both uh, forces Uh, were clearly interested in building a Ukrainian state, Ukrainian nation separate from Russia, and as part of Europe, or to many of them, as part of the Euro-Atlantic world. Um, Russia's own policy, however, uh, which uh, toward Ukraine at that point, um, was built on... uh, a very clear uh, preference for uh, the existing regime eventually leading uh, Ukraine toward the Eurasian Union. It's a a good thing that this policy, in my view, that this policy has not worked. Uh, Russia would have been much worse off uh, with Ukraine as part of uh, its realm for a number of reasons, um, I think it's uh, it's a good thing that Ukraine is no longer Russia's problem, but uh, this did not come without very severe uh, losses and uh, and uh, and uh, momentous developments, which uh, led to the rupture of Russian relations with the West, led to a new uh, confrontation with the United States, new alienation from Europe, which since 2014 has become official. I, so, As someone who has taken part in the Cold War, I don't think that the analogy between the period we are witnessing today, or living through today, and the period of the Cold War makes a lot of sense. Uh, not that there is uh, no political alienation, not that there is no military... Um, standoff now more to the east Uh, but I think if we accept the analogy of the Cold War uh, unwittingly we expect things to run the way they used to run during the Cold War and the environment in which we operate today has uh, changed beyond recognition so in my view the situation today maybe as bad as it was uh, during some periods of the Cold War, but it's bad in a new way, and it's bad in another way. And I think we need a new concept to deal with what we have now, rather than to borrow the concept from the past. Um, But as I said, Russia's own policy toward Ukraine suffered a huge defeat as a result of Euromaidan, and... um, Things were getting, from the Russian, from the Kremlin standpoint, things were getting uh, pretty bad. And um, the operation in Crimea, which I think had been um, planned and as part of contingency planning for years before the event, uh, allowed Mr. Putin to basically uh, secure victory out of the jaws of defeat. In Ukraine. And uh, by acting boldly, um, swiftly, he received a wide, genuine support among the Russian people. And that became the founding stone of this new uh, nationalism, if you like, in Russia. So I would posit to you that uh, a Crimea marks a major change. Things have been getting to that for years and i've been trying to to explain it but crimea turned what marxists used to call and hegel used to call uh, quantity to quality it was a qualitatively different situation after crimea uh, a genuine <laughs> festival of russian patriotism called it nationalism uh, cemented a very new relationship between the kremlin and the russian people and uh, cemented a very different view of of uh, Russia by the Russians. It doesn't matter very much that the other project, the Novorossiya project, uh, fell flat uh, and uh, was never really implemented. But uh, uh, Crimea and the conflict in, in eastern Ukraine led to a major reorientation of a large Number of Russian people, so that the majority that exists today, I would posit to you, is uh, is not a transient fact. This is uh, something that is going to last for a period of time. So it's uh, a lot of people who thought that Putin's uh, popularity in the mid or high 80s would be a short-lived um, period. Have been disappointed, Uh, but of course they were helped. Putin was helped very much by the sanctions that followed, uh, Crimea and Donbass. It's interesting to to see uh, so many people who, before Crimea, um, thought of themselves as uh, Ivans and Marys and Demetrius and others, Uh, beginning to think of themselves as Russians. Uh, And the sanctions helped a whole lot in pulling them, getting them, assembling them together, and uh, rallying them around uh, the Kremlin. Um, It's interesting, a senior government official uh, once said privately to me that uh, had there been no Crimea in 20 years' time, Russian middle classes, in the major cities around the country uh, would be uh, essentially cosmopolitan. And now there's a chance that they will become uh, Russians and see themselves as Russians. Um, People have been praying uh, when sanctions were imposed that they remain in place until 2018, the date of the next presidential election in Russia. Um, I think they realize now the sanctions will stay, uh, at least U.S. sanctions will stay for a very long time. And the relations with, the, with, with Europe, uh, although they might change and sanctions might eventually be eased, uh, will not be the same. And more importantly to them, the Russian people will not be the same. Um, let me... Say that uh, uh, what, what's been happening in Syria, uh, some of my colleagues believe, is also part of the same story. So Ukraine, Crimea, Donbass, and Syria have been crises engineered by the Kremlin in order to, bring, in order to uh, consolidate uh, the Kremlin's rule in the country and uh, bring the Russians around, closer uh, around uh, the Kremlin. I would disagree with, with, with that in in general, and I would disagree with that in particular with regard to Syria. I think that uh, uh, if anyone was thinking of uh, um, using Syria uh, as a as a tool to enhance uh, one's uh, popularity inside the country, um, had to be aware of the fact that when people in Russia today, when people in Russia, say, on the 30th of September, first heard about Russian airstrikes uh, in Syria, uh, the thing that I think all of them immediately thought of was Afghanistan. So this is something that uh, uh, clearly is not a vote-getter. This is a very risky operation. We might talk about Syria, but I believe that Syria was about something totally different. Syria was about um, saving um, Bashar al-Assad from um, an imminent defeat and saving him not because he is a fellow authoritarian leader but because he is one of the uh, forces who are combating uh, jihadis in that part of the world. And the jihadis, whatever their affiliation, uh, include a number of Ex uh, or or, or current Russian citizens or citizens or ex citizens of the former Soviet states, which uh, makes the objective of the Russian operation in Syria very simple to have as many of those people killed. It's not so much uh, a war to win, it's a war to kill. And in order to have somebody killing them, Russia is supporting Bashar al-Assad, Russia is supporting the Iranians, Russia is supporting Hezbollah, and Russia is supporting the Kurds in Syria. Again, we can talk about Syria uh, again. Let me, um, let me conclude. I, I think that uh, I should be concluding uh, shortly. Um, there's nothing very special about post-communist Russia turning nationalistic or patriotic, I use the word nationalist more not as a derogatory term, but more as a neutral word. Um, all post-communist countries turn nationalist unless they become integrated into uh, alliances, unions, communities which have supranational identities and supranational institutions. Um, An empire, and Russia was an empire, the Soviet Union was an empire, when it uh, touches the end of its uh, uh, existence, uh, turns into a nation-state. And this is where Russia is today. It is in the process of turning itself into a nation-state. The thing is, however, that... uh, this nation-state of Russia, precisely in the current circumstances, is not so much built from below, but it's being designed from above. And uh, foreign policy is a major tool in that very important, momentous, fateful exercise. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much, Dimitri, for that detailed analysis. Uh, I think there can be quite a lot of questions. A lot of hands have already gone up. I'll take two at a time. Uh, there's a chap there, and there's a chap in the middle. Could you swing into the middle there? Yeah. <laughs> just hold on a second. Could you get that microphone over now? Yeah, please. All right, okay. So could you just... Yeah, just say who you are, political affiliation, okay. height and weight. No, just yeah. who you are. It's all we need. Don't need any more than that. Okay. Um,
2: my name is Jamil. I'm um, studying um, an MSc in uh, EU politics. Um, uh, Mr. Trennan is very important for me because I uh, already quoted a lot from his books in my uh, previous yeah. master's thesis, and uh, I was I was going to ask him. Uh, about um, the extent and level of use of Russian military assertiveness uh, in its foreign policy nowadays. Because, uh, Mr. Trennan, you argue in your book, End of Eurasia, that Russia is no longer um, pursuing a uh, like revival of uh, Soviet Union, uh, nor an expansionist Policy, but now that we see the annexation of Crimea, how do you assess Russia's new standpoint in military assertiveness? Thank you.
0: Hold on. we'll take that one. I think he's asking you to revise your views from a previous book. I think. Uh, Who? Yeah. Please tell us who you are. Yeah. Just Uh, quickly. Thank you. My name is
2: Lincoln. I'm a student of War Studies at King's College London, and I was. um, I had a question for you. In recent months, we've seen several developments. Uh, We've seen the war in Donbass partially de-escalate. We've seen Russia make overtures towards Ukraine and sign an economic agreement that extends gas export until March 2016. Um, You disagree, but some say that Russia's involvement in Syria is in order to force dialogue with the West, which it has done successfully to some extent. the confrontation of the West and with Ukraine is certainly not over, but do you believe, to any extent, that Putin is attempting to
0: end it? Thank you. The question being, is is, is there going to be dialogue? Is that your question?
2: Is it in Putin's intentions to prolong
0: yeah. the conflict in okay. whatever way? Well, or, to you or use it trying yeah. to end it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So one about R- Russian military assertiveness and one about negotiation, I suppose. Dmitry.
1: Well, I think that uh, Russia is uh, now... It's a very interesting moment. Russia is uh, waging uh, its first U.S.-style war. It's something that uh, Russians have never done. They normally would uh, go in with tanks supported by the infantry. And they would uh, occupy territory and sustain losses. Now they are attacking with air power, naval power, um shooting not being shot at killing not being killed and supporting other people on the ground this is u.s style to me
2: <laughs> okay mr putin
1: um and that that's important because uh, mr putin is presiding over a nation which can take some losses even in a secret war but only so many losses And uh, it may be an authoritarian regime, but this authoritarian regime rests on the consent of the governed. And that consent can be withdrawn. Mr. Putin is is busy building a usable military force, which he will need for other things than parades in Red Square. Uh, There may be new battlefields closer to home than Syria. And I think Mr. Putin is, uh, is, is seeing Syria as a forward position in the war against uh, um, the more likely adversary, which is uh, extremism and radicalism coming from the South. Um, <clears throat> uh, with regard to uh, my 2001 book... Uh,
0: are you going to revise it this evening?
1: Uh, no, although I, I do revise my views. That, that's, <laughs> that's normal. Yeah. And I, I'm very open about that. I don't think that uh, Putin's project uh, of the Eurasian Union, even in its, um, uh, its, uh, its original form, was a way to uh, revive, restore the Soviet Union. I still think that the empire is, uh, is over. It mm. cannot be recreated. Uh, for two basic reasons: one, uh, other countries don 't want it. Uh, Belarus and Kazakhstan have not have not recognized the uh, incorporation of Crimea into the Russian Federation, and that, that, that speaks volumes about how russia 's closest partners uh, view their big neighbor. But Russia uh, is not going to pay for it. You, an empire is an extremely uh, costly project. Uh, Russia will not do that. So I, don't, I see zero um, possibility for any sort of an empire today. Uh, and I don't think that uh, expansion is the name of the game. I think that Putin was acting in Crimea under a very special set of circumstances that cannot be repeated anywhere else. So I... I've always been telling my Baltic friends that uh, they are beyond the pale and they should be very relaxed about uh, Russia. Russia is not going to gobble them up. Uh, and, the, and Donbass, I think, is a case in point. Uh, Donbass, um, whatever happens there is not going to be part of the Russian Federation. Uh, with regard to um, the second question, uh, I think Putin is... Uh, he tried to be, and, and I, I tried to show that in my, in my introduction, he tried to win a recognition for Russia uh, by being Mr. Nice, hmm. by being helpful to the United States after 9-11, uh, by under Medvedev or with Medvedev as, uh, as president, by essentially allowing the West to do something in Libya that the West terribly wanted, Uh, But having uh, decided that uh, he was getting no traction with being Mr. Nice, he kept the objective, but he changed the means. And he is trying to do the same, achieve the same objective by being Mr. Nasty. He is basically making Russia in Syria an indispensable part, an indispensable power. And it was graphically shown by uh, by his visit to uh, to washington d c and his uh, his meeting with Obama, uh, American presidents and their advisors view any meeting of their boss or of the president uh, with a foreign leader as some kind of a, of a favor uh, bestowed on others as a, as a reward essentially. Mr. Putin had nothing to be rewarded for, so the meeting uh, was not uh, on the president's agenda, the U.S. president's agenda, and uh, none of his advisors uh, were suggesting that, even though the two would be in the same town the same day, that Obama sees Putin. But Putin, by engineering military buildup in Syria, just before the U.N. assembly meeting, basically made it impossible for Obama not to see him would have been totally irresponsible of a serious Western leader not to see someone who is doing something which might, you know, affect the fate of a region. Uh, and uh, so Putin forced his way through to the, to the negotiating table with Obama. And this is what he is doing also in, in Syria by inserting himself into the, into the fray, into the war, and making the United States talk first about deconflicting and then about coordinating, and then maybe about cooperating. It's not to divert the attention from Ukraine. It's something more fundamental, and that's the new way.
0: Sounds like he's got a strategy, even if nobody else does. Uh, There's a woman here and a woman behind. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, Dark
2: hair, yeah. yeah. Say so you are, please. Uh, my name is Lydia. I study at Moscow uh, Institute of International Affairs. Uh, first, uh, my par- you were the teacher of my parents at the mi- Military University of Minister of Defense. They say hello. <laughs> and uh, so the question, uh, do you think that Russia as a whole and uh, Russia's uh, foreign policy will change significantly when Putin's successor comes?
0: Okay. Uh, And then somebody in front. Yeah. Yeah, please.
2: Yeah. Hi. Um, I recently wrote my dissertation
0: on Russia's, um, how the Crimean annexation has impacted Russia's sort of supposed hegemony in Central Asia. And I read some of your, and referenced some of your work on
2: um, remittances in Central Asia. Um, How do you feel um, the more nuanced aspects of Russian foreign policy? So with the economic,
0: um, Eurasian economic... Union, um, how have they used the,
2: sort of, the visas' access in Central Asia to sort of put forward their ideas?
0: Okay. Thanks very much. Okay, there's two there to go, and then we've got two at the top. Then I'll come down again. Yeah, please.
1: I don't think Mr. Putin is planning his retirement uh, at this point. Um, I think he sees his, um, his job as a lifetime job. No, serious, it's, uh, uh, you know, there, there's this, uh, there are technicalities such as presidential terms. And there's a job that needs to be done. And uh, we talked about keeping Russia in one place, or in, in one piece, rather, and elevating that to a, to, to a certain position. Uh, I, you, you've noticed I haven't mentioned the word economy there, which is a a major concern, clearly. But whatever happens um, uh, after Mr. Putin, and clearly there will be a successor at some point, uh, I believe one thing will not change. And that thing, I believe, is fundamental. Uh, The Russian political class, no matter how you treat it, no matter what your attitude to it is. My attitude is pretty negative toward the Russian elite. But no matter what your attitude toward that elite is, you have to recognize that these people um, will not um, accept any leadership coming from the outside. And that, to me, was the biggest issue in Russia's relations with the West after the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union. The integration of Russia into the West failed not because, although that was a major reason, but that was not the most important reason, not because the West was not very strategic about Russia or Russia was not, in, not, not democratic enough to be in it. I think the most important thing was that the Russian elite did not accept the U.S. leadership. And it will not accept US leadership when Putin is gone. So that would be my answer to the question. And policies may be softer, they may be det- detente, they may be uh, all sorts of things. Putin himself may change that. He is not bent. He is, is The idea for Putin is not to fight the West. The idea for Putin is to fight the West to get what he wants. If he can get it in other, by other means, fine. If he has to fight, and he sees he has to fight, he will fight. But the idea is not to defeat the West. The the idea is to get the Western recognition for Russian role in the world that does not fit into the post-Cold War order. As simple as that. And how people will deal with that, we'll see. I mean, you, 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 you will certainly see that. On, on Central Asia, um, I think this will be a big uh, – it's, it's, it's an increasingly important issue uh, to uh, Russia in terms of what happens uh, uh, in Central Asia, what happens with those countries. They are seen. Uh, people will not talk about it. It's very uh, – very freely for very obvious diplomatic reasons, but this is the soft underbelly of Russia. You have 7,000 kilometers of a border with Kazakhstan and borders, uh, essentially there are no uh, barriers, effective barriers that would keep the bad guys off between uh, say, uh, Southern Siberia and Afghanistan. And that's that's the problem. So I think that Central Asia will be a very big issue. In terms of economic relationships, uh, migration flows, visas, etc. cetera, uh, those are important issues. But I think the most important issue is what will, what will happen there uh, security-wise. And as we know, uh, succession is on the order of the day in both Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, the two biggest countries of the region on which the region itself depends. And I wish them well, I wish both Uzbeks and the Kazakhs to manage their successions well because Russia's own security depends on that.
0: How healthy is Putin? Because if he's going to go on and on and on, he could be around for, he doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke, he does exercise. He's very unsoviet. So uh, I maybe mean, he could be around for at least another 30 years, I mean, who knows? Well, I don't answer that question. No, no, no. I don't want to get no, you no, no. Uh, Well, <laughs> you've got to think about that. There's somebody up the back. Keep waving that. Could you say something now? Right. Let's have a question, please. And there was somebody um, else up here, whoever, you, wherever you are. Thank you. you. Are, where are you? Okay, got you. Okay, fine. Thank yeah. you,
2: Professor Trin in um, Natasha Kurt, Department of War Studies. Um, I think I'm in the book with you. Um, Speak up a bit, please. Thank you very much. I wanted to um, ask you about the anti-Western narrative which
1: is permeating public discourse in Russia, mm. um, to what extent is this really driving the nation-building which you spoke about today, and
2: um, how durable can such a negative discourse be?
0: Okay, and person next to you. Um,
2: Agla yeah. Natkov, ETH Zurich. Um, I had two quick questions. No, one. one. Okay. Um, basically, whether or not you think that in the discussion of the Cold War and in the way that Putin is trying to position Russia as a great power. He's basically fighting whatever, the last war. Because he's always been very careful in balancing uh, politics, security, and economics. And even in 2012, he tried to basically modulate the two as being equally important. Basically, he seems to have abandoned one in favor of the other at the, at the expense of, you know, Central Asian neighbors, the Asian economic union, foreign direct investment, et cetera. Um, If if we're now in the world of economics, has he basically missed the next fight, which is very much about having economic power as a mechanism supporting your great power ambitions externally?
0: I think you've got three questions in there. Well done. (laughs) And uh, and there was somebody else up here. Uh, Yeah. Who's got the microphone? Yeah. It's the man with the microphone who's got the power.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Uh, I'd just like to uh, question this idea that uh, Putin is supporting Assad because he's Uh, fighting against jihadis, because we know the the regime
2: led out a lot of jihadis from prison at the start of the Civil War, the barrel bombings are the greatest recruiting sergeant for that, and the torture in his prisons, and the army isn't fighting ISIS, really, the the Syrian army. So I just uh, wonder if you could explain how that that works. Okay.
0: that's three, then, to go for Dimitri. Okay.
1: Okay. Well, first of all, uh, I try to explain uh Putin's nation building through foreign policy means uh but clearly my preference for nation building is different uh, my preference is for bottom up not top down uh i think that anti-western narrative is uh is uh, very uh damaging it closes the russian mind it returns people to uh, uh uh, the besieged fortress which they uh, left a quarter century ago. I think it's uh, often plain stupid. Um, the good thing about that is, there is uh, that uh, a lot of people uh, uh, accept criticism of uh, Western policies, but this does not extend to uh, uh, Non-political areas of, uh, uh, of of life. For example, uh, I've just seen that uh, uh, Russian films, and I this is not something I'm very proud about, but Russian films have done very badly in the last uh, during the last year. Most uh, box office returns in Russian cinemas uh, uh, actually went to uh, American films. Uh, this anti-Westernism uh, covers primarily uh, the world of foreign policy. Domestic politics of Western countries are not an issue. Essentially, Western countries are seen as uh, paragons of democracy. The problem is that they're trying to bring, uh, from the Kremlin's point of view, that they're trying to bring that democracy to areas where, w- which are not ready for that. And uh, that, that, that's, that's the issue. Or maybe the issue is that they're trying to do it in Russia, uh, and uh, with the consequences of that are, are very clear to see. Uh, so, how durable is the anti-Western narrative? Um, I think it will uh, it will last as long as uh, as long as uh, as Putin demands it. It can be switched off, and uh, you can return to uh, to a different kind of narrative in which the West is. Uh, uh, is is a partner, it has its own interests, it's more of a competitor. I think that you will not go back to partnership lightly, but I think there's a difference uh, between being called an enemy and being called a competitor. And I think we will be go- going more to the competitor slash uh, partner in certain circumstances at some point. And even today, um, they uh, on, on, on Russian television, they... Um, they're very happy when uh, the U.S. and Russia are talking, Syria, talking, deconflicting in Syria and, and other such issues. Um, is Putin fi- yeah, I, I think that uh, I, I mentioned that uh, economics is not part of Mr. Putin's, um, not, not at the top of Mr. Putin's agenda. I still remember very vividly his conversation on television with uh, finance minister, former finance minister by that time, Alexei Kudrin. And Kudrin, uh, you you know, there are these uh, town hall meetings, if you like, with Putin talking to a group maybe as big as yours, uh, and with people phoning in or, or, you know, appearing on the video from across the country, and he does it for four or five hours. and all sorts of questions uh, come up, and all sorts of people—very important, very senior people like you here—are, uh, you know, raising questions. And more than questions, they make uh, sometimes they make statements. So Mr. Kudrin was sitting in the front row, and he, before he asked the question, he, he um, went went on for a few minutes discussing his plans for Russian uh, economic reform. And then Putin looked at him and said. Alexei, uh, you've been voted the best uh, finance minister in Europe. And for all I know, you may be the best finance minister in the world. But Alexei, you're only a finance minister. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And to Putin, I uh, I think the dilemma for the Russian president is this. If you leave everything untouched, and I think he knows better than anyone, any of his critics, how brittle Russia is. How corrupt the Russian uh, 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 bureaucracy and the Russian political class, how corrupt they are? There's no question. You know, he, he knows the details. We don't. <laughs> but he does. and that's, that's how he rules the place. Uh, but uh, if you leave every, anything, uh, if you leave everything untouched, you will be on a slow and terminal decline eventually. But if you try to do something, mm. and if it goes wrong, mm. <laughs> then you lose everything. <laughs> and eventually you lose uh, the country and very soon. Mm. So that's, I think that's the dilemma that that, that he's facing. Uh, <laughs> the Jihadis, uh, I don't think that the Russians and uh, after a while they stop making, uh, f- uh, they, they, they stopped appearing that, uh, that they only were fighting ISIS. They, they're fighting all jihadists. For, for, for the Russians, uh, for the Russian military and the Russian uh, political leadership, uh, moderate opposition uh, sits, is, is, sits in uh, places like Doha and Cairo and sips coffee or tea, the people who fight on the ground. Uh, anything but moderate, and uh, whether they are their affiliation is with uh, uh, ISIS or 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 Jabhat uh, al-Nusra uh, or Jesh uh, Al-Fatah or Al-Sham or whatever it is, it, it, it's to the people uh, in the Russian leadership that makes little little difference. They may be reaching out to uh, the FSA, the Free Syrian Army. They may be pounding them a little bit so that they are softened up to sit down with Bashar al-Assad and discuss the future of Syria. Uh, But uh, essentially, it is, uh, uh, as I said, it is uh, an operation in support of the people who the Russians believe are the only uh, uh, fighters on the ground against uh, extremist forces in Syria, uh, no matter what those extremist forces' affiliations are.
0: Okay, I've got two now one here and one here. If you could ask brief questions, because there's a lot of hands gone up. So, hi, Ben Sharp, Form student. Um, you, uh, do you think that there's a high risk that alienated countries in the EU, such as Greece, could turn to the Kremlin? Could Greece turn to the Kremlin?
2: Okay. Alexander Lushnikov, IR department, LEC. Um, Dmitry hey. Vitalich. Calm down. Спасибо большое. Quick question. In 2009, Vladimir Putin, together with Nikita Mikhalkov, brought back the remarks and body of Ivan Elin, one of the philosophers from the White Russian history. How much do you think Vladimir Putin's philosophy today is influenced by Ivan Ilyin? Thank, Thank you.
0: Okay. So is, is Greece and Russia? Syriza and Russia.
1: I wouldn't... Uh, <laughs> exaggerate the importance of religious ties, of uh, ethnic ties. Uh, I think that uh, Syriza was playing Russia off the European Union in order to get a better deal from, from the European that Union. didn't do very well, did they? Well, but they, they were trying. At least oh. they were trying. <laughs> okay. Uh, with regard to Ivan Ilyin, I think that Putin is, um, is, is someone who is sometimes called... Uh, um, Neo-Soviet or someone who is bringing the Soviet Union back—I think he's trying to bring the Russian Empire back, frankly, at least in, 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 in a sublimated form that would fit into the 21st century. I think that people like Leon uh, are very much uh, his, uh, his spiritual guides. Another spiritual guide, I think, is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Could
0: you bring the mic? Oh gosh, where are you going? Okay, fine, fine. Yeah, the gentleman there, please, yeah.
2: Uh, one country that brings the West to its knees is, is Iran. Surely Putin must be moving in on this.
0: Sorry, what's the qu- this is a question? What? The
2: Russian foreign policy and Iran.
0: Okay, right. What's the relationship? Where does it go? Uh, yeah, okay. And uh, wherever that's going, yeah.
2: Um, my on, name I, is Alessandro.
0: Rognoni.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm a student at King's College. My question is about the Caucasus. And in specific, what role did did the crisis in in Georgia in 2008 play in shaping Mr. Putin's view of foreign policy? And about the North Caucasus, how to reconcile the Russian war concept uh, um, with the situation in the North Caucasus, which, for example, in a report by uh, International Crisis Group has been defined as the inner abroad.
0: Okay. Could you push it forward here to Peter? Put your hand up, will you? I'll I'll take a third one here. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Mick. Uh, yeah. Pete Duncan, uh, actually very similar. Um, isn't there a contradiction between the Ruskimir and the whole Eurasian Union idea? I mean, what nation is being built? If, it, if it's the empire, then it's not a nation-state, it's an empire. Thank you. Okay, so Iran, Caucasus, and contradiction.
1: Okay. Um, Iran is a country that the Russians have known for, 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 for centuries, and the relationship has never been easy. One thing that every Russian uh, pupil learns uh, in, uh, in middle school is that the entire Russian embassy was wiped out in Tehran uh, in, uh, in the early 19th century. Uh, from the Iranian side, there is uh, uh, a lot of resentment over the fact that the Russians grabbed half of their empire and stuff like that. Russia and Iran are neighbors. Uh, they are allies today on Syria. Uh, I don't think that the Russians uh, will, be, uh, uh, will be pursuing their policy in the Middle East uh, in a way that, that, let me put it this way, I don't think that Russia is more than a situational ally of Iran. It would be very dangerous for Russia to be associated with uh, Shia countries, Shia regimes in that part of the world. And Russia finds itself in a somewhat uncomfortable position today in Syria by being an ally of Iran, a supporter of the Alawite regime in Damascus, a supporter of Hezbollah, uh, and uh, having a a, a, a semi-alliance-type relationship with the Shiite regime in Baghdad. This is something that's very, very uh, dangerous, potentially. So the Russians are reaching out to Egypt, the Russians are in very intense uh, dialogue with Saudi Arabia, uh, with the United Arab Emirates, uh, Jordan, uh, Turkey, etc. So uh, I think Iran is seen as, a, as an important uh, country, uh, and uh, it will be treated seriously, but it's not going to be an ally of Russia. With regard to the Caucasus, um, I think that the Russian interest in Georgia has... Uh, uh, has plummeted uh, since the uh, 2008 war. Uh, I think that they uh, feel comfortable now that uh, Saakashvili is uh, uh, somewhere else. <laughs> um, uh, but I don't think that they have uh, m- any plans uh, for Georgia or any special uh, interest in bringing Georgia closer to Russia. Uh, with regard to the North Caucasus, uh, the interesting thing in the North Caucasus is the revision of the terms of uh, the personal union between uh, uh, Mr. Putin and Mr. Kadyrov, which was the uh, the, the the mainstay of uh, of uh, Russian Chechen relations or relations between Chechnya and and the, and the Russian Federation. Uh, I think that Kadyrov is being, even as he is expanding his uh, his role within Russia and uh, internationally, yeah. is being is being brought more into line. Chechnya is uh, put Putin having uh, having done what he did, uh, in placing a former battlefield enemy to command in control of, of, a, of, a, of a of a of a of a territory that. Of a territory that rebelled against Moscow. Um, Fifteen years later, Mr. Putin, I think, is uh, is trying to bring Chechnya uh, more substantively into the Russian Federation. So the idea of Chechnya being a, a, sep, a de facto separate state is being revised. And that's, that's an important and risky operation. With regard to... Uh, to the uh, apparent contradiction between the mir and and the Eurasian Union. uh, I think that for Putin and for the leadership of Russia, there's not much of a contradiction. Russia is not, Russia itself is not a Slavic country. (coughs) Russia itself is uh, to a large degree Turkic, to a significant degree Muslim, so if you have russia then uh, it's it's not just your you know it's not ukraine in that sense I And mean, ukraine is, 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 is also has a number of, uh, of of ethnic groups that are not slav but but not as many as uh, not in nearly as many as, as as russia so there there's no contradiction ruski mir is not an ethnic thing i i, I believe it's um, it was grossly Uh, misinterpreted by Mr. Putin and used, uh, uh, misused rather, uh, in the war in Ukraine. I think the idea in principle was, uh, I think, uh, a promising one to create a a modicum of soft power to use it uh, to, but it, it, the problem with with Mir is that it could not have been run by a state if you if you want the state to run it that 's the end of of the concept it 's not going to be soft power anymore and uh, and that I think is is the real contradiction, not so much for Putin both Ruskimir and the Eurasian Union were essentially geopolitical constructs uh, post imperial uh, designed to uh, give Russia a role in uh, running this large geopolitical construct in Eurasia that he talked about in 2013 at Valdai. Hmm.
0: I got uh, two two downstairs and then two upstairs. Who's got the mics downstairs at the moment? Yeah, where are we? Yeah. yeah.
2: Uh, hello, my name is uh, Surjit Bjola and I study uh, political economy you at stand the up, Institute. So it, yeah. Yes, Thanks, sorry. Please. Just a quick question because we've um, got quite a lot of people here. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned uh, that Putin associates many, like, adverse events within Russia with, like, uh, intervention of, like, state uh, of uh, secret agencies from abroad. Um, how does that relate to his uh, KGB past? And how do you think does his uh, KGB past uh, affect Russian foreign policy now? Okay. KGB. <clears throat> right.
0: Do you give any weight to the argument that Putin himself is not that important and his only real skill is mediating between the liberals and liberals and keeping the show on the road as it is at the moment? Okay, and there's two at the top. One, and then two. The Hi, uh,
2: Anatoly, Central European University. You mentioned in the beginning that there are two objectives that Putin is having right now, keeping Russia in one piece and reinstating its status as a great power. However, it seems to me that there is this almost religious belief in the Kremlin that those are not two consecutive goals, but the, the latter is rather the, the only viable means of achieving the former. So I was just wondering whether you share this opinion, whether you agree with this interpretation, and if yes, uh, why do those two have to be so con- connected to each other?
0: Okay, there's one up here.
2: Bernard
1: Herman. It seems to me that Russia always had a dual split personality in Europe
0: and Asia. With the close relations between Russia and China, will the growth of the Asian self-perception of Russia grow? Okay. And last but not least, there's a lady here. Please, yeah. This will have to be five questions. There you go. Not bad.
2: Uh, good evening, my name is Ksenia, uh, I'm Russian, now I'm studying at City University London uh, Business. Uh, and uh, I know that Russia have got a lot of opportunities and resources, uh, but uh, the question is uh, how we should uh, rationally use uh, these sources or, and opportunities uh, to get uh, the same level of economical development as uh, there is uh, at UK, for instance, or in the Europe, uh, what uh, sources can uh, Russia use except, for instance, oil? Thank you very much.
0: Okay. Mere five questions. KGB passed. Okay. Putin is not that important. Is Russia schizophrenic and what about resources? And, <laughs> and if you can do that in three minutes.
1: Okay. Okay. Uh, KGB, I think that, uh, and I mentioned that in my presentation, I, I think people in the uh, security slash intel services around the world Tend to see the world as a as a more controlled and more controllable space, and I, I think that this uh, uh, this uh, also refers to Mr. Putin. Uh, his uh, KGB background uh, basically uh, left him with uh, uh, with I think a very uh, unique uh, view of. Uh, of the collapse of uh, of a country, he was present at the uh, demise of uh, East Germany, and that I think left uh, uh, must have must have left a certain mark um, in him, and he certainly wants that to uh, wants that prevented uh, in, in the case of Russia. Uh, <coughs> is Putin important? I think he is important, uh, and I think he is more than a manager of uh, various groups. Uh, although the groups uh, exist, and they, uh, or, or individuals that could be classified as members of certain groups, they do exist. I don't think that those uh, groups um, uh, form uh, tightly knit communities. I think we're talking more about individuals who may belong to different groups at, at, at a certain point. Uh, the Russian system is, uh, is built in such a way that there is, uh, there is a need for a czar, and Putin fills that role. He is a czar. And that uh, that says it all. You may be a, a, a more efficient czar, you may be a less efficient czar, you may be more enlightened, less enlightened, but uh, there's a difference between being a czar and uh, being somebody else. Uh, with regard to um, um, the two objectives of Putin's policies, I, I, I believe that uh, those two objectives are very, closely intertwined, and I tried to, to show the dynamic between, between those two. Um, but I would disagree that the only way to keep uh, Russia uh, together is to win uh, uh, an important position for it, for, it, for it internationally. I don't think uh, Soviet experience, and before that, the imperial experience of Russia uh, would vote against that. I think that Mr. Putin, as as an avid reader of history, uh, realizes um, how difficult it is to read Russia, read Russians. If we were talking uh, here with you exactly 100 years ago, I don't think I would have any sense that uh, the Russian Empire had less than 18 months to go. I don't think that many of you in 1915 would have predicted the fall of the Romanov dynasty within 15 months. Mm-hmm. Similarly, in the, in the final years of the Soviet Union, uh, it was almost too late when people realized that the country was unraveling. There's something about the Russian people that makes uh, uh, long-term predictions uh, pretty... Uh, risky. I think Mr. Putin knows it better than anyone else. Uh, His stake there is uh, as high as anyone's. So, um, you know, international recognition will not help you. And you hear that, you you know that from Mr. Gorbachev's experience and many other things. Uh, You have to be, you have to be with your, you have to very closely You have to be in touch very closely with your own people. And this is Mr. Putin's recipe for staying in power for 15 years. And he's been unique in cracking the code of uh, governing Russia. You're expected to be an authoritarian, I think, by the vast majority of the Russian people. But at the same time, you're expected to be in close touch with the majority of the Russian people. And that's tricky. Very few people can fit the bill. Uh, Russia and China I think that um, uh, Russia is in the process of uh, having been uh, for centuries the east of the west it may be in transit to becoming the west of the east with the uh, uh, not so much with Russia's pivot to Asia but more as a result of China's pivot to Europe if you like China has begun moving west, <laughs> and China is, uh, is, is initiating projects that are redesigning Eurasia. The Eurasia of the 21st century will be very much powered by the dynamism of China, not by the dynamism of Russia. And that is something that the Russians have to understand, accept, and find a way of dealing with that. That's, that, 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 that's a very big change. Uh, but it only became um, relevant to the Russians after the uh, collapse of the idea of pan-European integration, including Russia. So uh, in, my, in my view, the, uh, the project of a greater Europe, from Lisbon to Vladivostok, is being replaced by the reality of a greater Asia from Shanghai to St. Petersburg. Um, That, I think, is is something we need to think about. Um, Rational use of resources. I think Russia's biggest resource is its people. And um, the government's uh, inability to use that resource uh, could condemn the present system. The present political-economic system in Russia is unsustainable, in my view. And to make it sustainable, it has to uh, switch from oil and gas, which enriches a few people and does not require a few workers, to a system that prioritizes Russian resources, uh, Russia's real resources, which uh, are its, uh, its men and women, But I don't think we will be there yet for some time.
0: Okay. I think we'll draw the proceedings to an end. Firstly, apologies to those who had their hands up. I try to bring in as many people as possible. You may have noticed. I'd like to say a very special thank you to the LSE stewards this evening. Uh, You've done a world LSE record. We've had about 21 questions. So thanks all the hard work that you do. Uh, thanks to the Darendorf, uh thanks to the International Relations Department. This has been a, a triple effort. Thank you to you for all your very good questions, but most important of all tonight, thanks to our very great speaker, Dimitri Trenin.